The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. I know you're not keeping track, but this is part 35 in this John series. And uh, so this is the Come and See series in the book of John. And open your Bibles to John chapter 18. We've been looking at the upper room discourse for the last several weeks. This is John 13 to 17. And then last week, Chase talked about the high priestly prayer, John 17, where Jesus prays over his disciples and prays for the future church. And today's passage and next two weeks, we're going to look at the arrest and the, the arrest and trial of Jesus. Now, how many of you have ever attended a trial? Raise your hand. I'm not asking if you've been on trial, just if you've seen one. Uh, a number of years ago, I, a former student of mine, he got into some legal trouble, and so I wanted to go and support him and his family. So I got to witness firsthand for the first time just how the process plays out. Never seen it before. And I got to see the jury selection and part of the trial itself. And I walked away noticing two distinct things. Number one, it is not like CSI. And then secondly... As I watch the whole thing play out and the protocol, and as you look at the rules of jury selection and, and uh, what evidence can be brought before the courtroom, I, I became blown away at how all this process is set up and how hard everyone works to make sure that someone gets a fair trial. Now, I know that there's injustice. Of course, there's injustice sometimes in the system. But it was amazing to me, what stood out to me was just how meticulous and how everything is laid out with the, the main reason being so that the, the person who is charged can have a fair trial. That's what we experience for the most part here in our country. And then I began to contrast that and think about Jesus. Jesus was not afforded that right. The only true innocent man to ever live was not given the same rights as the worst criminals today. There could be a mass murderer in our country that would get a more fair trial than what Jesus received. So here's just a few of the examples of the laws, the Jewish laws, that the Jewish people broke as they brought Jesus to trial. A prisoner could not be forced to testify against himself. Jesus was forced to testify against himself a criminal cannot be tried on a feast day. Jesus was tried during the Passover feast celebration. A trial cannot take place in the house of the high priest. As you'll see today, there were many hearings in the house of the high priest. Now imagine this just for a minute. Like, let's modernize this for a moment. Imagine you get charged with a crime. You get arrested. And the arresting officer says, we're just going to deal with this right now. We'll take you down to judge so-and-so's house. So you go down to the judge's house, and he's walking out onto the front porch in his bathrobe, brushing his teeth, and he just says, we're going to do this right here and right now. Something in you would scream, something doesn't feel right about this, right? And yet in, with Jesus, they're breaking their rules, and they're carrying out justice in the uh, house of the high priest. Witnesses had to be brought in and cross-examined. No one was brought in and cross-examined in the trial of Jesus. The court had to prove guilt rather than defendant proving innocence. And then lastly, there was to be no striking of the prisoner. 
and we know how that went for Jesus. So these are laws that the Jewish authorities, their own laws that they're violating as they're bringing Jesus to trial. Now, why do I tell you all this? I tell you this because as, un, as unjust as this was, this was all under the sovereign plan of God. And you'll see in today's passage how Jesus walks willfully, intentionally, and purposefully toward the cross. So as unjust as all this was, it was still under God's sovereign plan. We know that every gospel has a different emphasis. If you look in the book of Luke, I think you see more of his humanity. You see moments of him in the garden where he's sweating drops of blood. You see him pray for the cup of suffering to pass from him. If you look at the book of John, like you'll see today, I think the emphasis is more on his deity. And you will see that Jesus has this steely resolve as he walks towards the cross. So I want you to look at for clues towards that in this passage. Look at verse 1. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So in John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples. Then they cross over the Kidron brook. Here's a modern-day picture of this area today. This is given to us courtesy of Danny Cunningham uh, from their trip this past couple of weeks. So if you look on the Temple Mount where that golden dome is, that's the Dome of the Rock, that's a mosque today. That used to be where the temple stood. The valley in front of you is the Kidron Valley, and they're standing on the vantage point of the Mount of Olives. So it's believed that the upper room area was around the Temple Mount area, meaning Jesus and his disciples crossed over this valley and up the other side to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now here's the same valley from a different vantage point. Look up on the left, you see the Temple Mount. The right, you see the Mount of Olives and the Kidron Valley in the middle. There would only be water here if it had just rained. It's typically a dry climate in Israel. And this is during Passover. So during Passover, there are literally hundreds of thousands of animal sacrifices taking place on the Temple Mount. So use your imagination for a moment. And you can imagine that hill being stained with blood as it ran down into the Kidron Valley. And so if there is water on this, in this riverbed, it's mixed with blood, most likely. This is the, the waters that Jesus and his disciples would walk through as they entered up the other side to the Garden of Gethsemane. So you have the Savior, Jesus, walking through the blood of animal sacrifices hours before he is going to give his blood for the sins of humanity. So the imagery here is powerful in this setting. They cross the brook into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the garden today. In the city, there, are, there is no room for gardens. So what would happen back then is the wealthy would own land outside the garden, outside of the city walls. They'd have gardens there, not just for food, but also for an escape from the heat to serve kind of like as an oasis. And this garden had olive trees. Gethsemane means oil press. Again, don't miss the imagery. We know what took place in the garden. You'll see it take place today. But just as olives would be crushed and pressed in this garden, Christ is about to be crushed and pressed for humanity. And so there's some rich imagery 
just in the location where all this is taking place. Look down at verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So right here, again, we see some clues. That Judas knew the place. It says this was a place where Jesus would often go with his disciples. What it looks like to me, let's do some forensics on this passage. What it looks like is that Jesus went there intentionally. He's not hiding. He's trying to be found. He, is, he knows where Judas is most likely to find him. And if, if I'm trying to hide, I'm not going to go where my enemies know I hang out. I'm not going to do that. And so I think Jesus is, is trying to be found in this scene. Now, we know most of the Jesus movies depict this band of soldiers as a fairly small outfit, maybe 10 to 15 people. But if you look at the word cohort in some of the translations that uses the word cohort, this would be over 200 soldiers coming to arrest Christ. The question is why? Why so many to arrest Jesus who never showed any kind of violence. Well, the reality is the Jews feared the crowds. This is during Passover. Jesus had a large crowd following in Jerusalem. And they feared that if they arrest Jesus, there'd be a popular uprising, and they would need to be able to defend themselves. So they bring 200-plus soldiers to arrest Jesus, this unarmed rabbi. They feared the crowds and what the crowds might do to them if they arrest their, their hero. Now, I want you to see something really significant here. In addition to the officers arresting him, they are both Jewish and Roman. D.A. Carson says, The combination of Jewish and Roman authorities in the arrest of Jesus indicts the whole world. At the historical level, it reminds us that common foes generate strange friendships. I think common enemies do make strange friendships because the Jews and Romans weren't friends. They were enemies. The Romans occupy this part of the world and the Jews live under their rule, but they're not, they don't have a lot in common. And the right of execution belonged only to Rome. Jewish leadership were not allowed to put anyone to death. This is why the Jews enlist the Romans. They know that they need the Romans' help because... Um, They want to kill Christ because he claimed to be God. So because of his theological claim that he's God, the Jews want to put him to death. And so what they do is they twist his theological claim into a political one, and that'd be an issue for the Romans. The Romans wouldn't mind so much if someone makes a theological claim, but they will care about a political claim. This is why the trial with Pilate is all about whether or not Jesus is king of the Jews. And so they take this theological claim and make it a political one, and they enlist the Romans in, in, in help, in their help to hopefully put him to death. There's this strange historical moment where the Jews and Gentiles come together to arrest Jesus. So we could say before the cross... Jew and Gentile are 
united by a common enemy, and it's Jesus. Then if you flash forward to Galatians, and if you recall in one of Paul's statements in Galatians, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So after the cross, Jew and Gentile are now united by a common Savior. And it's this powerful image of this unification before the cross as they arrest Christ, but as the church grows and flourishes, there's a new unification through the gospel and through this common Savior. In the garden, Jew and Gentile are united in his arrest, trial, execution, but in the church, Jew and Gentile are united by his death, burial, and resurrection. I've always told my students that in the church, some of the friendships should look abnormal to worldly eyes. Some of the friendships should look weird to the outside observer. I love whenever the journalism student is good friends with a football player. I love when the white-collar person is good friends with the, uh, the blue-collar person because they have Christ in common. It's a testimony to the gospel when people that have nothing else in common except Christ and him crucified, that they have a deep friendship in the gospel. I wonder if in this scene, in this garden scene, if there were people who, Jew and Gentile, united as they arrest Christ, if some of them ended up in the same congregations, how awesome would that be? And here they are, one under Christ. The gospel has a way of bringing, bringing about strange friendships, and I would say the weirder, the better. It's a great testimony to the gospel. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, so there's that phrase again, knowing all that will happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now right here we see some more clues. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. So he, he goes to them and basically offers himself to them. Now in this statement, he says, I am he. In the Greek, it's just ego and me, that he is left off. Can you recall, ego e me means I am. It's just a statement, I am. Can you recall a place in the Bible where that statement was used? Old Testament, Exodus chapter 3, Moses is doubting his ability to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, and he's, God's calling him to lead the Israelites. And he says, they're not going to believe that you sent me. And God says, tell them that I am sent you. And then in the book of John, we've seen seven different I am statements where Jesus has said, I lost my place here. I need to find where I'm at. Here we are. I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And I think here in John 18, this is the final I am. And he says, I am he. I am Jesus of Nazareth. And when he says it, everyone falls down. So these 200 plus soldiers with Spears and swords and shields and torches. And there's this unarmed peasant rabbi 
who with his words, he flattens an entire Roman cohort. There's no question here who is in the driver's seat in this scene. Jesus knows just what he's doing when these men come to take him. He's in full control. Look at verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And as they get up off the ground, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. He's saying, if, if you're here to arrest me, let's, let's get on with it, guys. Let these men go. Because if they're arresting Jesus, they might try to take everyone guilty, guilty by association. But right here we see an important point. That Jesus really meant what he said when he said he's the good shepherd. When he's standing between these men and his sheep, he really meant that he's the door. Like, you're not going to get to these guys unless you go through me. And I think we can say that this passage, this, this verse in, uh, in verse 9, where he says, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. What is that verse really about? In John 17, 12, Jesus prayed, he said, I've kept these in your name. I've guarded them, and not one of my disciples has been lost. And you might say, well, wait a minute, what about Judas? It certainly seemed like he was lost. And I would just say, well, he wasn't, he wasn't a true believer. Just like back then, there, was, there were people that would hang around Jesus that weren't true believers and followers of Jesus. There are people in the church today who hang around the church that aren't true followers of Christ and aren't true believers. And so I think in the context of this passage, the immediate context is physical safety. I think we can say that. But if you follow the thread through the book of John, I think we can also link this passage to eternal security. Because in other places, Jesus says he doesn't lose what the Father gives him. No one snatches his sheep out of his hands. Jesus doesn't lose any sheep. I'm not sure if any of you here have ever struggled with the assurance of salvation. I mentioned to you before that when I was a kid, fear and anxiety was, I lived under a curse of fear and anxiety about a lot of things as a kid. One of those things central was my salvation. I grew up in a church tradition where there was a lot of emphasis placed on the event of salvation. Come forward, pray this prayer. If you don't feel like you're saved, well, do it again. And do it again, do it again. I must have done it 30 times as a kid. And then I'm sitting in junior high, eighth grade, Bible class at a school I was attending. And the Bible teacher says this to us. He says, if you don't know the date of your salvation, then you might not be saved. He said this to me. I know. And so I go back to my locker And I remember I looked at a calendar. I looked at the time. I think I wrote it down. And I said, I'm going to do this again. I'm going to pray this prayer again. And um, I still can't tell you what day that was. I know it was October, around that time of the year. I still might not be saved. 
And so if you struggle with this, I mean, I've got students who struggle with this idea. We're launching a high school Wednesday night equip group, November 7th, called How Do I Know I'm Saved? They can come here and me work out all my issues in that equip group if they want. But we struggle with this, and here's the encouragement for you. Are, Are there... This won't sound encouraging here at first, but are there people who think they are saved who are not saved? That's absolutely true. That's true. It's biblical. But God doesn't want true believers living in constant fear and doubt. No one is snatched out of his hands. He doesn't, he doesn't lose any sheep. Let's look down at verse 10. Then Simon Peter Here's where it gets really good. Having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, I know we live in Texas, where most of you think that conceal and carry was invented here. But it was obviously invented by Peter. So he pulls out this sword, and he cuts off this guy's ear. Now, either Peter has really good aim or horrible aim. I've got my money on horrible. Uh, Some people think he was really aiming for his ear. I would say that's unlikely. That would be some real surgical precision. And we know Peter was a fisherman, not a ninja. He was trying to kill this guy. What probably happened was he, he takes the sword and tries to go at this guy's head like this, and the guy ducks to the side, and he slices off his ear. And this poor guy, Malchus, is looking like Evander Holyfield after a fight with Mike Tyson. Some of you won't get that reference at all. That's why there's Google, but do it later. But the big question here is, Why didn't this lead to a riot? And let's modernize this for a moment. Why didn't this lead to Peter getting killed? Let's modernize it for a minute. If if you and some friends are gathered and you're approached by 200 police officers in riot gear and one of you attacks, it's not going to go well. Something's going to happen. It's not good. So why not here? There's a couple reasons I want to point out to you, and I think this might be credible. First of all, the man he attacks is a servant of the Jewish high priest, not a Roman soldier. It might be that the guys with the weapons just didn't care too much about this guy. The second reason, and I think it's significant, they may have been distracted by a miracle. If you remember in the book of Luke, Jesus heals this guy. And so that may have been a little bit of a diversion Um, at that point as to why they're not going to retaliate. And this whole scene is just thick with irony. These men walk up and they say, we're here to arrest you for saying that you're God. And Peter cuts off this guy's ear and then Jesus picks it up and he puts it back on as if to say, what was that? And so this whole scene is just thick with, with irony. It's almost comical if it weren't so tragic. 
This is the last public miracle that he does before going to the cross. I think we just gloss over this. This is not the feeding of the 5,000 or turning water into wine. But don't miss the significance of this miracle. Because this guy, Malchus, is there to help arrest Jesus. And he's injured. And then Jesus goes and heals him so they can continue with the arrest. I mean, look at the kindness in Jesus in this moment. Last week, Chase did a great job talking about how we as Christians don't always love our enemies very well. And he talked about politics, which is fun to talk about in church. And I think it's true. If you're not yet a believer and you feel like, I don't think Christians really love their enemies that well, I would say you're right. We don't. We can be very hypocritical in some of those areas. But I will encourage you, if you're a skeptic, don't look too hard at us. But look at Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, who is someone who loved his enemies in a way, where even in this moment of arrest, he brings healing to this guy who's there to help arrest him. So look at Jesus if you want to think about those that should love their enemies. So we'll come back to this in a moment. I'm going to summarize this next section because uh, Gary gave me section eight, verse eight, uh, chapter 18, verses 1 to 23, and I had to stop at verse 12 because it was just too much content. I'm going to summarize this for you. They go to this guy named Annas' house, and that's not really him. They didn't have cameras back then. But he, he, who is this guy? Well, he is the high priest, kind of. I'll explain what this means. He used to be the high priest. Now his son-in-law Caiaphas is the high priest. So why does a passage in your Bible say that this guy Annas is the high priest? Here's why. Because he's still seen by the Jews as a figurehead. He's still seen as the, kind of like the godfather in the mafia. Even though he's been deposed by the Romans... He's still seen and respected as the high priest, even though his, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is actually the real high priest. So he's kind of like a godfather, and he even acted like it. The Jewish Talmud says this about his family. Woe to the house of Annas. Woe to the serpent's hiss. They are high priests. Their sons are keepers of the treasury. Their sons-in-law are guardians of the temple. And their servants beat people with staves. I don't know what a stave is, but it doesn't sound very nice. And so Annas and his family are obsessed with money and power. And Jesus was a problem for Annas. If you recall back to John chapter 2, where Jesus turns over the money changer tables, Annas had set up that whole operation. That was his baby, a way to gain more money and more power And so Jesus turns over his tables, and now the tables are turned, and Annas is in this seat of power, and he wants to put an end to this Jesus. He has a vested interest in what happens in this moment. So they take Jesus to Annas' house, and this intense scene erupts in verses 9 to 23, 19 to 23, and 
we can't get into that scene. I want you, you can, that's a to be continued portion of this sermon. But what do we do with this whole garden scene that we've walked through? Well, I think it reminds us of, of a different garden. It reminds us of the first garden. If you remember, in the Garden of Eden, the first Adam rebels against God. But in this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the last Adam, Jesus, submits to God, submits to the Father. In the first garden, a sword is revealed. In Genesis 3, when they're expelled from the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, a cherubim is placed at the entrance with a flaming sword. So in the first garden, a sword is revealed. In this garden, a sword is put away. In the first garden, man sinned and was cut off from God. In this garden, Jesus is bringing man back together with God. In the first garden, man brings sin and death to all. In this garden, Jesus is about to offer righteousness and life to all. One writer says it this way, What was lost in the first garden is redeemed in this second garden. And so this is the big picture of what's taking place here. But how do we live in light of that reality? I want to go back to the scene where Peter cuts off the servant's ear and look at Christ's response in verse 11. It says, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? So the question is, what cup is he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, there is an image in several passages of a cup in reference to the cup of God's wrath. And basically the idea is if, for those that are not repentant, they will have to drink the cup of God's wrath against sin and suffer the consequences of their unrepentant sin. You see that in Psalms, you see it in Isaiah, other passages. There's this image of the cup of God's wrath against sin. So at the cross, Jesus drinks this cup in our place, and that's what he's referring to as he says, refers to this cup that the Father has given to him. Now this idea that Jesus the Son would drink the cup of God's wrath against sin is not a popular idea in some Christian circles. Some Christians have called this they would say the, the cross can't mean that because that would be divine child abuse. The son drinking the wrath of the father would be divine child abuse. That can't be what the cross means. And I would just push back on that and say two things. Number one, Jesus is not a helpless child. He's God. You see him walk willfully and intentionally and purposefully to the cross. Every moment here, He knows what's going to happen. He is not a helpless victim. The second reason I would point to is earlier in John, we see where where Jesus says, I, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down for my sheep. So for someone to say it's, that can't be what's happening at the cross, I would say they have, They have stripped the cross of its theological meaning and really stripped Jesus of his deity. So we we don't call it divine child abuse. We say that Jesus is willfully drinking the cup of God's wrath against sin. 
And he does it in our place. This is a biblical idea. So here's the invitation of Jesus. Either we drink the cup of God's wrath, or Jesus does it for us. Either we drink the cup, or Jesus drinks the cup. And that is the gospel invitation. That is the invitation. And I know it's hard for us to see ourselves as deserving of God's wrath. I know if you grew up like I did in the church, and you're a pretty good kid growing up, it's hard for us to see ourselves as deserving of God's wrath. And it's easy for us to look at a story like this and see the characters and think of Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate and the Jewish Sanhedrin and the Roman soldiers and say, evil, 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 evil. How could these people do this and not believe? But we have to remember one thing, that if our theology is correct, then it's our sin that put Jesus on the cross. It wasn't just some circumstance or just these men, but our sin put him on the cross. And so either we drink the cup of his wrath or Jesus provides a way and does it for us. If we respond in belief and faith, we are now empowered to live in a new way with a new kind of power. So there are two images here in this passage. There's the sword and there's the cup. When Peter picks up the sword, he is taking matters into his own hands. The sword is a picture of unbelief and not trusting in God's sovereign plan. Recently, I heard a sermon by Matt Carter on this passage. He talked about this idea. That right here, Peter is committing the sin of the drawn sword. And he said, what are some ways that we commit the sin of the drawn sword? The drawn sword being taking matters in our own hands and not being willing to submit to the sovereign plan of God and wanting to execute our own plan and our own methods. And here's some examples that he gave in how we can draw the sword in our own lives. When we choose to enter into a romantic relationship, if we're a believer and we enter into a, one of those without, with an unbeliever, this is the sin of the drawn sword. And I know when we think of the drawn sword, we think violence, and we instantly go, I'm off the hook, that's not me. Well, let's can we broaden this out a bit and, and talk about some heart stuff, like what's going on behind the scenes. When we walk away from a marriage and there's not biblical reasons for a divorce, that is the sin of the drawn sword. When we do unethical things at work, the ends justify the means, just like Peter thought the ends justify the means. This is the sin of the drawn sword. When we live consumed with fear and anxiety, we commit the sin of the drawn sword. As Chase preached about last week, whenever we exhibit hatred, toward the other political party. This is the sin of the drawn sword. And so what are the ways in which you and I commit the sin of the drawn sword, taking matters into our hands, refusing to submit to the sovereign plan of God? How do we do that? The other image is the cup. And in one sense, Jesus does drink this cup in our place. But there's another way to think about the cup. 
Because the cup is a picture of trust and faith and obedience and submission to God's sovereign plan. And so just as Jesus submits to his Father, he calls us to do the same thing. And this is not about a works-based salvation. This is not about the things you have to do to get saved. But Jesus is very clear in, in Luke 14. He talks about if you want to follow him, you must bear your own cross. It's the cost of discipleship. Salvation is, is free, but discipleship is costly. So when Jesus calls us to this kind of discipleship, he's calling us to bear our own cross. This means that we die to our will and we embrace God's will no matter the cost. So as we follow Jesus, there is still this cross to bear and there is still this cup to drink. So where in our lives do you and I need to put down the sword and pick up the cup. Father, we thank you for taking, in one sense, taking this cup in our place, while at the same time still calling us to bear our cross as we follow you. God, we thank you for giving us the power through the Holy Spirit to live out this kind of life to live the empowered life as we follow you. God, I pray for those in this room that are believers but just struggling with submitting to your sovereign plan, submitting to the cup. God, I pray that you give them wisdom and discernment and and bring about repentance in our lives as we put down the sword and pick up the cup. God, I also pray for people in this room that may not know you, People that might think that following you is some half-life. God, I pray they would see coming to you this invitation of you drinking the cup in our place. They would see that invitation and say yes to that invitation. And say yes to you this morning. We praise you and we thank you for your sacrifice for us. And for your resurrection. And you giving us new life. We pray this in your name. Amen.